Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to... Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. As listeners of the show probably know, I've had a long history of fascination with cults. It probably started with learning about Charles Manson and the Manson Girls when I was far too young to be learning of such tragedies. But when I was young, cults seemed like something so out there and bizarre, that it couldn't be something that you or I could ever experience. But as I got older, my fascination with cults turned to one of trying to understand. Understanding the psychology of cult members and their leaders, how someone gets involved in a high control group, and what that does to our minds. I first heard of Nexium when it was all over the news in 2018. Keith Ranieri had been arrested and charged with acts such as identity theft, conspiracy, sex trafficking, and even slavery. Keith had been running one cult or another through an MLM-slash-pyramid scheme outline since the 1980s, and had been evolving as an evil cult leader ever since. By the time my guest today, India, met Keith in 2011, Keith was running his ESP courses, or Executive Success Programs. These were intended to help people overcome their, quote, limiting beliefs like phobias and fears in order to become more successful people. The courses cost a buttload and students were asked to recruit more and more people into taking the classes, bringing more and more people into Ranieri's circle. In many of these classes, students would undergo something called an EM, or Exploration of Meaning, which is a process where a person is forced to share a painful or traumatic memory from their past so they can reassess the pain and become healed. Once a person undergoes enough EMs, pays for enough classes, and begins moving up the ranks, or in this case, recruiting more and more people, until you become more whole and a better you. Doing these things also help you move up the ranks in the, quote, company of Nexium. And the people who were in Nexium were being told that they were changing the world, that this was the best place that you could possibly be because Keith has the highest IQ of anyone in the world. He's the smartest man in the world. He knows everything. He's a master at everything. And because you're learning from him, you too are going to be a world changer. But it wasn't the ESP classes that made headlines. It was a separate, secret sect within Nexium called DOS, which loosely translates from Latin meaning dominant over submissive. DOS was pitched as a secret group for women by women within Nexium to help others reach greater lengths in their growth through the programs. Members of DOS had no idea that this group was actually created by Keith himself, along with his minion Allison Mack and a few other women who were at the top. Keith disguised himself behind these women in order to recruit women to be his, quote, sex slaves. So to get started, Allison and a few other top Nexium women recruited others to join. To do so, all women had to give something called collateral, which is really just blackmail. 
Collateral could be anything damaging from nude photos to telling untrue, horrific stories about your family or a loved one or even giving away the deed to your home. Collateral had to do with something so embarrassing or shameful or important that you would never ever release any of Doss's secrets in fear that your collateral would be exposed. Once you're collateralized, you are now a slave. And the person who recruited you is your master. And you must obey everything your master tells you to do, because they're supposedly doing this to help you. One of the most shocking things to come out of DOS was the branding. Keith and Allison created a design with their initials, telling the rest of the women it was a symbol of the elements that would be branded on their hip or groin area as an exercise in overcoming pain. What it really did was force a submissive and dissociative state, causing the women to psychologically feel even more tied to their sisters and master in DOS. India was recruited into DOS pretty early on by Allison Mack. India was indeed branded and recruited other women into DOS as well, making her a master to them. Something that I don't mention in the interview but is important to India's story is the sexual abuse that occurred within DOS. One of India's assignments from Allison was to seduce Keith. Allison told her that this was part of her growth, that it would help her be less self-conscious of her body, and Keith could help her heal. Now, I didn't mention a lot of these more painful elements of Nexium and DOS because I don't want to re-traumatize India, and I also don't want her to have to linger on a lot of the really negative aspects of what came out of the group. And I want to also encourage all of the listeners before listening to this interview to please be kind if you do reach out to her and to ask her respectful questions, just as you would for myself. Now that I know her a little better, I do feel a bit protective. Anyway, thanks to her mother and so many other people in her life that love her, India finally got out and is now able to see her experience in Nexium for what it was. Whenever I talk about a person on the show, I love to look up their astrological sign and what that may tell me about the person I'm about to talk about. When I looked up India's birthday, here's what it said. Gemini is born on June 7th, have the desire to make their presence felt in the world. They are curious and vibrant with an ability to keep their level of enthusiasm high, no matter what. When I read this description, it was funny to me how much it really did remind me of India, because so much of her story started with her curiosity and her wanting to make the world a better place. And her level of enthusiasm for making the world a better place was what made her such a powerful tool in Nexium. Now, I've never met India IRL, but a little over two years ago, I first heard her story in a docuseries for HBO. In it, her mom, Catherine Oxenberg, was heavily featured, and to me, Catherine emanated an energy that reminded me of my own mother. I read Catherine's book, Captive, and in it, I learned about the special relationship between Catherine and India, a relationship, again, that reminded me a lot of mine with my own mom. In 2020, when the world was locked up in their homes in quarantine, I listened to India's audiobook, Still Learning, on Audible. I listened to it in one sitting, and I was taken aback by how much India's story reminded me of my own. Not the specifics of the cult, but the feeling of being a 19-year-old girl who was abused and manipulated, and now being 30 years old and feeling like I'm still healing from some of the abuse I endured. 
I reached out to her when I finished listening to the book. I think I said something about wanting to be friends or something else super nerdy like that, but she actually responded. And ever since, we've had this online pen palship that's been really wonderful. I've been fortunate enough to have some really deep and meaningful conversations with her, and I can't wait to get to know her more and hopefully eventually in person as well. Knowing her a bit better now, I know India wants to make her presence known to the world in a positive light. She has a relentless pursuit of making other people and the world a better place, even if that led her astray at times in her life. India's enthusiasm and perseverance has been on display since leaving Nexium in 2018, taking down the man at the head of it all by helping the FBI and sharing her story with the world. I see a lot of myself in India, but I am also so inspired by her. I hope you all enjoy our conversation and come out of it loving India as much as I do. Oh my gosh. Well, I am so unbelievably happy to like finally meet you. I feel like I've kind of like known you my whole life in a weird way. <laughs> it's been like a couple of years of like being yeah. internet pen pals. That's kind of wild. Isn't it funny when that happens? Like I, I, this whole world of social media is so cool to me. Like I hate it and I love it all at the same time because it's not natural for me to be like, you know, interfacing with lots of people all the time. I'm way more of an introvert. And in, in you do soul. it very naturally. And, well, I try. And that's like what I prayed for. I was like, okay, so if this is supposed to work out, please let it come smoothly and like, let it flow. Because there was a while where I was like, I couldn't even, I didn't even want to go on Instagram because one like after all of the seduced press, there was so much of an influx of, of messages after all that press that that I was like, I can't handle all of this uh, at once. So I started to just like chip away at it. And then I was like, wait, okay, this is manageable. I can do this. Like I know who some of these people are, hence our relationship. Yeah. I know, I know like how much time I want to spend on here realistically it's not, this is not how I make money. This is not my job. Right. Exactly. A platform that I feel like is super valuable. And I've like made a lot of interesting connections. I've been able to, um, just relate with all sorts of folks and different, um, brands that I would yeah. have never had contact with. So like that, that is, is the really, really quite cool. It is the amazing thing, especially for me during the pandemic. I've never really used social media as a means of like meeting people. So like even reaching out to you and things like that, it was never something that I had to do before because I was always like out in the world. But for you in particular, um, so I watched The Vow like everyone else when it came out. And I was like, I've always been very interested in both psychology and true crime stuff. Like I really wanted to be... um, a child like abnormal psychologist when I was little, but I was told I was too stupid to do it. So I never went for it. <laughs> um. <laughs> I think that's such a niche market. That's really under, right? underserved. Yeah. I, mean, and I, I had like the of- best child's therapist growing up too. So I was like, that would be cool. I had my mom. So basically <laughs> like I had somebody reinforcing that magic existed, but if I didn't, I think I would have been really lost and felt yeah. really low, really lonely. And I, I definitely felt lonely uh, yeah. even, even having a mom. Yeah. Um, well, my but, mom, I mean, we both have amazing yeah. moms. Like that's the other thing that I love about you, but I've always had this like weird fascination with like, I guess growing up, my mom was really into like the Charles Manson, the really creepy, scary, whatever. But to me, I've always connected more with 
the human side of the psychology amongst all of that. And when I was, you know, 18, I moved to LA and I immediately got into a very abusive relationship that I was in for years. And I really think it was because that I was in such a vulnerable position. It was around the same time that my eating disorder started. I had been dealing with self-harm since I was very little. And I also was starting to act and be an actress. So I was having all of this like external judgment coming at me. And then also this incredible manipulation from somebody that I loved who was really abusing me. And so when I hear about these, you know, high control groups, things like that, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. (laughs) You know, it, it really was something that I very much like resonated with and understood. And your story in particular, you know, we're practically the same age. I think you're like, I, I did a little research on you. So you're oh, June, June of 91. I, I am. I'm 31. Okay. So I just I, turned 31 in June. Yeah. I just turned 30 yeah. in July. Oh, one year. Yeah, so, so we're about a year apart. We're about a year That's apart. I'm July 92. So yeah hearing your story, especially because we're about the same age, you know, we kind of went through that same transitional period at the same time. The other thing that jumped out about you right away was your relationship with your mom. Mm. And so my mom and I are incredibly like too close. Like we had to go to therapy to like cut the umbilical cord a little bit. Later, <laughs> like, later years, yeah, I think that's like a layer after layer process. Me and my mom were really this unit and we were always together. And she was like- we were a team, basically. Yes. I had a mom dad too for a lot of my life. And yeah. so I was like, oh, these dads, they're nonsense. Like you don't even need them. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I still I mean, kind I, of feel that way. I'm not, I I'm not lying. I'm always like, hashtag I, not all dads, but like- Yeah. No, I know. Good that's, ones. That's, that's where I'm saying I'm like where are the good daddies and like to be real like I, I I respect my dad he's he's been a fine father but he wasn't the typical father that I was looking for and I was you know in my mind as a little girl you have a fantasy of what your dad is supposed to be like and if it doesn't match you know you've got years of disappointment and daddy it's issues to work out it's devastating, devastating. but I but I I totally relate to you about being a unit. Like yeah. that's, that is a particularly challenging relationship because yeah. it, you don't even realize that like, you, it's hard to determine like who's who. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's it like, you, you have to like kind of learn your own autonomy as you get older, because if you grew up feeling like such a unit, it is really hard to separate yourself from that in a lot of ways. But I know that like, you know, so your mom got remarried when you were like still fairly young and you got siblings and all that kind of stuff. Was that like a weird thing for you to go from being an only child to having all these siblings? I'm an only child, so I can't imagine what it would be like to suddenly have siblings. (laughs) Definitely. Um, It was weird, but I wanted to touch upon something that you said earlier about like your experience with abuse and how when you yeah. did watch my story, you didn't see it as all that different. I mean, I talk about that a lot in, yeah. in interviews and podcasts because I think it's really important for people to see that um, this is like a cult of one also exists. Like you don't yeah. need to be in a, in a high control group or in a cult quote unquote to be experiencing these types of abuses, especially like psychologically um, and physically. So I just think that that's important for people to not brush off because I think a lot of times people want to compare traumas and they're like, 
oh, well, your, you know, yours was in the news or it was so, you know, salacious and like all of these things. So maybe but mine's when you, when not you, as bad. Right. And that's yeah. not true. That's not true at all. Like yeah. if, you stri- if you strip away the content, the experience that we had is pretty much the same. Yeah. It's like, it's like it, the effects that it had on my psychology, the effects that it had on my body, that it had on my hormones, that it had on my, my mental capacity to understand what was real and what was not. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, I had a cult induced eating disorder for sure for years. Yeah. And so like all of these kinds of coping strategies, I had chronic pain, I had depression, I had suicidal ideation. I mean, all of these things are things that people that experience abuse can relate to. So like, I don't really care about comparing trauma. I just care about people feeling heard and, and recognized and understood because I think that's what we all want anyway. And I think it's important also because then people don't see your experience as being that crazy. Cause I think it's really easy for a lot of people to be very judgmental mm-hmm. and to be like, Oh, well that would never happen to me. I would never be a part of that. I would never fall victim to that. I wouldn't fall for it. And I think that that's really easy for people to live in this like very protective bubble. But then when you can translate it into more of like an everyday trauma, if you want to put it that way, something that's yeah. like uh, more people can understand, it makes situations like yours seem less like out there you know what out I mean this world exactly they're, they're it, yeah. all in this world but like now to answer your question about family of origin because I feel like that has a lot to do with uh, how we set ourselves up for the rest of our lives right but I did I did come from predominantly a mother acting as a mom dad for the first seven years of my life and then right. I had a stepfather who came into my life and he had two children who were two and five at the time. And unfortunately, they had had a lot of abuse from their mother. And so they, they became um, my mom and my stepdad became the sole custody of those of those children, um, who are my stepbrother and sister. Uh, So it was really, it was really startling for me, because I had not experienced like yelling and screaming and, <laughs> and, and and violence and all of these things and like in a way I kind of had a like even though it was unconventional because my mom was also a working actress she yeah. had I had lots of nannies and caretakers and yeah. different folks for different times and she even went to rehab at a certain point when I was really little so like mm-hmm. I had she had an extended support system taking care of me like it takes a village more or less yeah but um I had a lot of love and I had a lot of uh, like wonder in my life. And like, I was able to be an only child outside hanging out with my cat in the, in the trees and like, like life was good. I li- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so like, I remember my childhood feeling that way. I remember feeling free and feeling like I could talk to adults and I didn't feel shy. Yes. And I didn't feel shame. Uh-huh. And, I, I think it wasn't until I entered school that I started to really develop complexes. So I was about five when I when I went into kindergarten and I left a school called Waldorf, which was super alternative education for I preschool. I think I totally know what yeah. Waldorf is. I mean, just yeah. being in the nanny spheres, I like know so many random schools in the area. And it was perfect for me and my little kind of artsy brain. And like yes. I I thrived there and then they yeah. threw me into a regular public school and I was fucking terrified yeah and 
and I didn't know how to read. So yeah, I, I well, like, so you were diagnosed with dyslexia. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, let's clarify. Like yeah. she's literate. She just, <laughs> yeah. yeah I also were... wrote a book. So I know exactly. Like, <laughs> like all of this dyslexia nonsense and all of the slapping of a, of a label on a, a really young child actually did quite a, a bit of damage. It's to disheartening. Me. It, yeah, it really is. Yeah. The same way that I appreciate that you you spoke about the child that you're going to take care of as having lots of energy like when kid when people are like oh that kid's ADHD I want to be like shut the fuck up have you do you forget what it's like to be three years old yes like you have a lot of energy you idiot you have a lot like, of energy and also like everything is new and exciting you want to There's explore wonder. you're curious exactly and it helps me stay that way as well you know I love getting those little like bits of childhood back and I think that's why as much as I'm like I'm never going to be a nanny again I always end up taking care of kids I, I'm so passionate about this because I feel like it really relates to just my story on a whole is yeah. like when, when you when you get a label slapped down on you either by society or by your family um, or by yourself yeah it's like sometimes you feel like you're condemned to that forever and you don't, it doesn't feel flexible. It doesn't feel like anything you could change. Like, yeah, you could say the same thing of like, I could say the same thing about myself when I was put into the news when Nexium was exposed, like it mm-hmm. was branded sex slave. Yes. Girl. Yeah. And it was like, and I, for a while I was like, is that really going to be how people know me for the rest exactly. of my life? Like, yeah. like I'm India Oxenberg. Like I know who I am. But like, I didn't also know who I was at that point because right. I was going through a transitional period of it really would be hard to defend yourself at that point. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was really hard. I was like, uh, well, there was work that you I'm had to do that. on you. Yeah, I was like, I know I'm not that, but like, something bad definitely happened, and I can't quite figure it out. And yeah, it was just like so much of uh, processing that I had to do and so like you know take it back to how I was raised I was raised in like an unconventional household and really all I craved was normalcy and structure and reliability and truth like pretty much all kids yeah and and I didn't get that all the time and so I think I went out into in the world looking for that in other people and also looking for kind of like a makeshift family without even really being conscious of it. I think that that's common for someone who's like, you know, 17, 18, 19 going out into the world. They're like, it's now my time to create my own family. Exactly. And start experimenting with, you know, being around different types of people and trying different things. But I think talking about, you know, structure and lack thereof growing up makes a lot of sense into, you know, your next phase of life. Like, what do you think, how do you think that played into you first taking your first classes with like, it was, it's the ESP classes, right. That you first start with. And then you go on from there, you and your mom. And it's, again, this is totally something my mom and I would have done. We actually totally fell for one of those like acting talent cruise ship things, but you know, like (laughs) it's totally something my mom and I would have been like, Oh, it's going to be this like growth and learning class. Let's go together. Like, can you talk a little bit about what, what that decision was like, just kind of looking back, like, Hey mom, let's check this out. What's it about? It was kind of like what, it was just like what you said. I mean, it, it, ironically, like looking back, I wish that I would have been more 
thoughtful about it, but mm-hmm. it was purely instinct. Like, I, but why I should you a, have been more thoughtful? I, I that's the thing. Is like I I would I wasn't, but like you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you look yeah. back and you're like, nowadays, you know, before I do things, I research. Like, yeah, I do a little bit of work. I ask people, like, not not always. Sometimes I I do go on my instinct because I trust myself right. now. But at the time I was young and I was vulnerable and I was in a transitional period of my life. That's why I say I'm vulnerable. Not right. because I was necessarily more naive than the average person, right. but I, I was 19 and I yes. was looking for structure and I had just left university and I was home and I was like, Hey mom, <laughs> just like yeah. you just said, Hey, do you want to go to this intro? Like our friend, our trusted friend has told us that this freaking thing is awesome. Right. So why don't we go and check it out? And innocent so, enough innocent enough and and it, it, it seemed pretty cool like in the intro presentation I was like this is interesting like I have fears that are stopping me from getting what I want like yeah. I remove those fears I just remember raising my hand up and going like me I that's me I'm the one with interference from my childhood and they're like all right <laughs> simmer, simmer down there little girl but like, oh no, in the no. back of their head, they're like, they're like hold on to this one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we got to reel her in. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing is like the, and, and I, I talk about this a lot because I think that we're confused about what it means to be vulnerable. What it means to be vulnerable is to really believe that there's something wrong with you when there are not. Yeah. And that's how people can exploit you. So like the fact that I believe that there was something wrong with my brain because I had dyslexia, the fact that I believe that there was something wrong with me because I was 19 and I didn't have my shit together. Also really, really outrageous thought. The thought that I thought that I needed to be anywhere else, but where I was also putting pressure on myself unnecessarily. Like all of those things made me vulnerable to people who seemingly had the answers. Yeah, exactly. Um, Or that I look to as authority figures. So like, It really just depends on where you're at in your life and what you're looking for and what you feel like you need in order to be whole because those little holes that need filling can be filled by great things or they can be filled by manipulative people. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, talking about the innocence of the whole thing is also really important because like they're telling you all of these things that everybody wants to improve about themselves in their lives. Like everybody wants to remove those fears that keep us from becoming successful. Um, And then I feel like also, you know, and you can probably speak on this a little bit more, the perception that I get from just what I've consumed about Nexium is that there was probably a lot of love bombing going yeah. into the beginning. And there was a lot of making you feel very special and wanted. And like you said, you were no, that's me, that's me, that's me, you know? And they were like, this is somebody that could be really helpful to us. And they make you feel so supported and loved that even when things yeah. make you feel uncomfortable, you still feel like you can trust those totally. people. Am I getting it a little bit you, right? Yeah, you do. Okay. You do. You you do. And I think you also probably get it even more so because you've done work on yourself from your, you know, your unfortunate abusive relationship because that's the same path that yeah. someone someone would take in a high control group or if they were trying to, you know, lure a potential mate. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like, it's the same, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff that I didn't know what to look for because those were also blind spots for me when it comes to charismatic people 
who say a lot of things, but don't really deliver. Well, we were, you know, you were raised in LA. I've lived in LA for 12 years. I feel like there's a lot of people like that around you in general. So it's almost hard to be like, who's real, who's not. It's the land of Lala. Like, yeah, there's so much phoniness that I thought I actually had a really good bullshit detector. Of course. Because I I generally did. But, you know, right place, wrong time, because I was now looking back, I can go, oh my God, like, little 19 year old India, like you definitely, definitely had this blind spot because you actually thought that there was something wrong with you. Yeah. That was the running theme that they really exploited, um, both financially and with my time and with my network. So it was like one of the things that they loved about me and that they, you know, talk about love bombing was that they're like, this girl's local, like let's tap into all the people that she knows so that she can, you know, through her trusted network, because people trust me, yep, that she will be able to recruit people. And the, the, the truth is, like, I tried so hard to recruit people. And I recruited a very small number of people into Nexium, into DOS on a, on a whole, like the right. whole seven years that I was there. It was really hard because I was selling a bullshit lie. Right. And I was brainwashed into believing that it was the fucking bee's knees. Of course. So I was like. I was going around, you know, using my skills, which is like my love and my connection to people to do something that ultimately deep, deep down, I didn't believe in, but I had to actually convince myself to fully believe in it because it was like, I, otherwise I was living in two different worlds and the world that I had to commit to was this world that Naxium was creating for me, which was not my, was not my life. That's weird for people to kind of like conceptualize. But if you have been in an abusive relationship, you understand the experience of like you disappearing and this kind of other persona that's really about self-preservation yes. and getting getting love and feeling like being protected. You are a piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And being protected and feeling like you have no value because that's what you're being told to. And then you become a shell of yourself. Yeah. It's creepy, but it's, it happened. No, it's, it's totally true. And I can also imagine that through trying to get other people that you love and care about to be part of the same group as you would also be very like isolating as well, because you're, you're telling people about it and some people are really seeing it for what it is. And I almost feel like that's almost a cultish tactic as well, because as you're more open about it, you're closing in that circle of people that can give you more perspective because you're only surrounding yourself with people that agree with you. Right. Yep. You're exactly right. That's exactly, (sighs) that's like one of their main tactics for what is the term is predatory alienation. Okay. So basically like the predator will alienate you from your support system Mm -hmm. or from those that know you and convince you that the reason why there's distance is because they don't get you. They don't understand you like us. Yeah. We understand you. You we support your highest values. So there's like a lot of seduction really yes. yeah. about you know who loves you most. Mm, there totally. for you most. And then at the same time you are pulling away from your friends and family so you do feel alone. You do feel distant. So like there's enough truth in the way that they're manipulating that you also 
start to believe, but you're being coerced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's exactly the thing that you don't realize. On the yeah, you you think that you out. truly believe it, but you but you yeah. don't. It's not authentic with who you are. I mean, you were even further isolated. I mean, tell me how the hell you ended up in Albany. Yeah. Never, never been. Doesn't look yeah. like a hip happen in town. I mean, not, you, you were pulled from everything. Wouldn't be the top of your list for travel. Let's okay. So I should, um, I should cross it out of my yeah, to-do list. It for my- <laughs> it's, it's got some pretty, you know, it's got some pretty parts like Saratoga right. Springs and things like that. And I'm sure it's upstate New, it's upstate New York. So like, right. it's got all those. I'm sure there are also- lovely people. I'm sure there are lo- lovely coffee shops, you know. <laughs> Eh. Kind of, I'm spoiled, but uh, I I would say that I I got there because (laughs) the courses that they offered that I wanted to complete were in Albany. And so like Mm. part, part of their process of recruiting was seeing who would actually go there, like who, who they could get to Albany. And then they had all of this mystique around like... As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Albany and Keith and like, it was like the freaking Wizard of Oz. So like, 
you didn't really know what you were coming to, but you kind of knew that you were going there for no distractions and like you're just going there to work on your personal growth. That was right. kind of like how it was pitched to me. You were like and the I, most dedicated. Yeah. And that was cool. Yeah. Like in <laughs> the course. group. That was cool. But I feel like so. for people who are like, you know, if you're a perfectionist or if you're a people pleaser, like, of course you yeah. want to be like the most dedicated, check, check. the best at what you do, all that kind of stuff. So like, what was that like for you to completely remove yourself from not just like your usual surroundings, but like, you know, speaking of you and your mom being such a unit, you know, when you first started, you know, you would kind of gone through it together. Your mom was like, this seems weird. I'm out. And then suddenly, you know, you're still very young moving all the way across the country from all of your support. Do you feel like, like, what was that experience like for you? Well, some things happened in between that. So like my, my mom stayed a student for several months, like probably a little less than a year. And within that, within that time period, I was also a student, but then they started to heavily recruit me to be a coach. And in order to be a coach, you had to finish your 16 day program and that like to finish it, you had to go to Albany. Okay. So that was really the reason why I went initially then throughout the, you know, we're talking the full seven years that Mm -hmm. I was there in the middle of those years, I was going back and forth from LA to Albany to take courses and to to train myself. So I was kind of like, like living two lives, almost like this Nexium life that was building itself and that I was really becoming involved in the community. And then, you know, periodically jumping back into my old life in LA. So I was straddling both worlds. It wasn't until I was about 24, 425 when I was recruited into docs, which was the cult within the cult, that I then had to relocate completely and really leave everything behind as like a a command. Yeah. And so, and that was when I was collateralized. So I really didn't have the choice to say no at that point anymore. And like people, you know, the invisible chains were already there. Like I was already very much involved to the point where I felt like I couldn't leave now on top of it comes dogs. You really couldn't leave. Really when I couldn't leave. Yeah. What do you think made you so desirable for something like DOS? Well, I think because I was so committed to what I thought was my growth within within Nexium, like within yeah. the bubble of Nexium. Yeah. That I was a a target because I was already so primed with all of their indoctrination that there, it wasn't really that hard for them to recruit me. Like they, you know, it was Allison Mack who recruited me directly. And I guess you could say that, I, I, I mean, I don't really consider myself Keith's type because that seems like weird because I never really even thought of him in that way at all. So yeah. even when I was talking to the FBI later on, they were like, well, didn't you just see that this was all for sexual gratification? I literally laughed out loud. I was like, what? Like, no, that's not how this was presented to me. Yeah. I was like, that's not what they told me. Uh, And I'm like, oh, that the weird sexual stuff that he does. Like, oh, that's like going to the doctor. Like, like my mind was so twisted up by their lies and their Uh stories that I didn't even know what was, what was, you know, what right from left was. Of course. So backwards, but like cut to living there was very strange. Like now that I'm in my own life, which I actually feel like is dictated by me and the things that I want to do. 
fucking weird to think about my life in Nexium. It's like a different person. Yeah. Because it, it was like, it was structured. It was militant. There was no rest. There was no vacation. There was no leisure time. There was no, like anything that you did for pleasure was criticized. Right. Like there was no drinking. There was no drugs. There was no just sex for enjoyment. That was there the was one no, thing. Like, Every time I've consumed anything Nexium, I'm like, I would need to be wasted. <laughs> I wish I was wasted. I mean, like now looking back, I, I like I was so scared of drinking. Like oh my when, gosh. I came, when I came out of it, I was like, fuck, did I just like go through like seven years of basic sobriety? I mean, but in, in a way I did, even though there were times that I had I think I drank, I don't think I did any drugs to be honest, yeah. but I was in all of Nexium and like, I love smoking weed. So like, I, I don't know how I got through that, but I did. Right. And now I have some amazing tools. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. I know. I'm like, you and I, healing on the other side. you and I need to talk about like hallucinogens someday. Oh, we just yeah. need to have a whole separate like conversation about all of that. Cause I am like so fucking fascinated by all of that, but oh There's my gosh, more, more soon for that, by the way, because we're putting out a website that's <gasps> all about, um, the psychedelic lifestyle with or without psychedelics. So oh. it's a, it's, the emphasis is healing. Um, my mom and I are doing it through our foundation. So you we'll are? have, a, yeah. So we'll have tons of information on the website coming soon. Uh, and then uh, down the line, a couple years down the line, we're building a brick and mortar healing center on the land that burned down when we lost our home. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. So just like tangent, but that's what a those full circle, beautiful moment. I love yeah, that. Out of the ashes, we, oh. we're going to rebuild it into something that actually helps people and really it kind of stems from both of our origin stories. Cause when I got out of Nexium and when I was kind of like going through in and out of being psych in a psychosis for a while, yeah, I kept, I kept calling my mom and being like, I want to die. Like, please yeah. send me. So I was like, send me somewhere. Where can I go? Where can I go? And she would like look up rehabs or places like that. But no, right. none of these things fit the bill because uh -huh. they did, they didn't focus on like the root of trauma. They focused on symptoms of yes. either like you have an eating disorder or you're a drug addict or yes. you're, you know you're manic depressive here's a pill so like our whole our whole approach to healing has been way more like dynamic well you had to kind of build the wheel body. yeah you know and because we, we've been doing it together and now we're like putting this stuff out there so that we can be like yo we did it really quickly like in, in a sense, like we've been able to figure out how to make this less expensive, faster, yeah. more approachable because healing should not just be for people with means like that is ridiculous. To right. Me. Like everyone should have access to healing if they want it. Yeah, exactly. Oh my so, gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. I wish we could just talk about happy, lovely things. Yeah, I know. Well, because <laughs> yes, exactly. Do I do always want to focus more on the positives, but I think that it's it's important to understand a little bit about you know the intricacies of what DOS is as well. I think that from what I've learned, it was very much presented as this, like, it was kind of during the whole girl boss movement. It was around the same time as like LuLaRoe and like that whole. Definitely was. And then it imploded with me too, which yes. is really ironic. Isn't it? It's so funny yeah. because like, <laughs> it sounds like it's this like female empowerment, great thing, but it's like, it acts as the it's total opposite. Enslavement. It is. It's, I mean, now I can fucking laugh about it a little bit, but like it was horrendous. Yes. Like 
It was horrendous. It was abusive. It was twisted. It was sadistic. Well, like, talk a, was- talk a little bit about just like your daily life because I know a little bit about readiness drills and things like that. Just however much you want. You don't need to go into crazy detail. Yeah, let's see. But like, love- if you could just paint a chaotic picture for us all. Well, like <laughs> that's the that's the weird part is like it wasn't so much chaos on the outside it was more chaos on the inside because okay you were you were always like seemingly busy but you were busy because nothing that you were doing was working so mm. it was like being on a hamster wheel it's not like how we work in the world where it's yeah like, I put an effort and then I get you know something back <laughs> yeah yeah get a it result like, from that yeah it was, it was like you're just putting an effort and putting an effort it was like feeling like you were slamming your head up against the wall because you weren't actually getting any real tangible results except were for- you getting any validation because I yeah. feel like that would be the occasionally one thing you would, right occasionally and that was you know nice so you if you got validation here and there that it was kind of like a little carrot dangling forward and right. then it kept you going but like really the day was pretty monotonous. It was kind of like living. Um, I was living in a bubble. Like yeah. I would go, I would go to class. I would do my work for DOS. I would do my practices for DOS. I was, you know, very, very focused on such a small world because it was more on how much I could eat when I could eat, when I had mm. to stop eating. Like, you, you know what it's like to have an eating disorder. Like you yes. don't, you can't think about anything else. It's like no. your whole life is around basically being too fat or too skinny or too this or too that. And it's well, like and they're insane. also just like, when you are losing that amount of weight too, what was explained to me when I was truly in my sickest was it's like, your brain is not functioning because no. you haven't had enough nutrients. And that is such a terrible tool that was used against you all. That is so it, sad to me was. because- you didn't have the choice in that matter. You know, I made no. some, I made some choices in ways that I was able to self-soothe myself throughout my life that were probably not the best ways to do so, but this was encouraged amongst all of you and all of Strongly, you. It was mandatory. It wasn't even yeah. just encouraged because they had us all like whoever they wanted on a starvation diet, they put on the starvation diet and <sighs> it was really a way to control you. And I didn't even know that, like what you just said is really brilliant because it wasn't until I started working with the FBI that they actually said like, you know, you were not in your right mind. Yes. You're running on 500 calories for like over a year. Which is literally, it's impossible. It's insane. I I ended up in a hospital before then. You know what I mean? Like it was. I didn't have periods. And And you weren't sleeping. I I wasn't (laughs) sleeping. I was, it was sleep deprivation, food deprivation. And then, and we were like on a fucking high for it too. That's yes. the crazy part. Is because like, people don't understand the euphoria that can come along with that because it, it's in yeah. short bursts, but you do control. get this high. Mm, isn't yeah. it? Isn't it all yeah. about that it's sweet, sweet, sweet control and the perceived control that you had over yourself too. Not even thinking about the fact that you had I to relay it, it back together. to somebody else to you. It was like, I am doing this for my own that's what Betterment. I believed because that's what I had to believe really for my own sanity at that yes. point. Like if I, if I had actually like popped out of the delusion and the brainwashing at that point, I don't know if I would have made it because I think I would have been so disturbed to realize. You wouldn't have that, recognized yourself. 
no. And I actually didn't recognize myself. That's the trippiest yeah. part is that when I left, I, I, I remembered for a long period before I had left the cult, I didn't look at myself in the mirror. Like I didn't make eye contact. And I remember recognizing that and going, that's funny. Like I used to look at myself. Like I used to put on makeup. I used to brush my hair and look at it. Like I don't, I didn't do it anymore. I didn't even like it. It didn't feel good. It actually made me feel bad when I looked at myself. So then, you know, coming out of it in in my healings, my healing years, the past four, four and a half, whatever it's been. Right. um, I started to recognize that like a lot of growth came from how I saw myself in the mirror because Mm -hmm. I could see myself, but I couldn't feel myself. And I was like, I don't recognize this person because it doesn't feel like me. And so it was like slowly regaining myself layer after layer after layer, body, mind, spirit, soul, like whatever I needed to get myself back was what I focused on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, incredibly hard. And the other thing that is just so disheartening to me about your story is that not only were you indoctrinated into this group, but you were also so pressured to bring other people in. And as a person, so I was raised Catholic. I always talk about the Catholic guilt. I always talk about how I, I have a hard time. Survivor's guilt. Right. And I think that there's also a lot of like issues that we can have with forgiving ourselves when we either have perceived to, or have, you know, hurt other people in a way. It was so hard. Yeah. What was that like for you? I mean, honestly, like that really was fucking disturbing. Like when I, when I had to confront what I had done in the eyes of the law and that I was a cooperating witness for a reason and I had a lot to say, and I uh-huh. didn't even realize what I had experienced to the fullness until like, it took years to really realize the fullness of what had happened. Right. And and the fact that I brought in women into DOS was like devastating to me because I really, really believed when I was there that this was good. Yeah. And like, I was not in my right mind. And I've, I've gone out of my way to make amends with some of those people who wanted to. Right. Um, and there's been healing there. And then others, they wanted to just part ways. And I was understanding about that. Yeah. But and that's also so hard. part of the healing process as well. It's so hard because it's like every time I went out to, you know, make a new friend or rekindle an old relationship with a, with women specifically, I was scared. And I was like, do I trust myself yet? Like, do I feel like me? Are they going to trust me? Or Like, am I a good person? Am I a monster? Mm. Like all of these, you have all of these thoughts. And you question yourself so deeply when you go through something like that, because I never wanted, like, I am not somebody who likes to hurt people, like even just accidentally. And the fact that well-intentioned people can still do bad things is a reality. Yeah, exactly. When you're being brainwashed and manipulated and coerced. So like, like that, that, that it happens. Yes. It's hard. You brought up something that I've never really even thought about, and that is like rebuilding female friendships after all of that. I've never even really, really considered that. What what was that like? And also, like, I mean, I I think another important thing is that the person in charge of all of this was so incredibly misogynistic and patriarchal and shitty that there was a specific way that, you know, a woman had to be and a man had to be and all of these things. Um, how did you navigate all of that, because to me, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you seem to be a pretty, you know, liberal feminist woman 
who yeah. went through this, you know, experience, how did you kind of like unlearn those really unhealthy misogynistic teachings and rebuild your future into like having real female friendships and trusting yourself? Like what, what was that picture like for you? Once again, layer after layer of healing, because you're right. I was a misogynist. Like I had thoughts that were very anti-feminist. Like right. I had thoughts about women that I didn't, that didn't feel natural to me about myself, about my, like the value that I possessed, what right. I was here, what I was here for in the world. Was I just here to be like a dairy cow? Like, was I like, literally I had thoughts like that, that I had never possessed. And I was not raised that way either. Like right. my mom is a feminist Oh yeah, and, and like all about girl power. And like, that's what I was raised with. I yes. feel like women are incredible. And like, especially when we work together. Yeah. And so like all of that felt really like unnatural, I guess, is the way to, to describe it. But it had also started to feel like me because I had been replaced with this new like version of myself. It sounds right. really sci-fi, but that is kind of how it felt. And, and I just kind of remember like if I had any deep opinions that I knew weren't in um, agreement with their philosophy, I right. kept them to myself. I didn't really share them. I didn't really, I tried not like to provoke. I tried not, I tried to be a people pleaser. I tried to, you know, be on board. It was easier that way. It made you less of a target, even though you were, well, I was going to say you, you didn't have to worry about being chastised or made fun of. You wouldn't have been said like, I let's talk about that. You know, why would you, why would you fight it when you know that you're going to be punished for speaking your opinion. Exactly. So yeah. that's kind of like what I, my subconscious and my nervous system started to be trained to do, mm -hmm. which was just like suppress, 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 and just like go with the doctrine, try to do your best. But like being you is not safe. Basically. Right. Right. Like being myself and being like having the opinions that I have, which are strong opinions. And like, yeah now much more informed opinions about life and relationships and men and women than they were then. Yeah. <laughs> but like, even then I had had plenty of experiences, but like it, like nowadays I know that if I was ever put into a situation where I had somebody who said something that was like that, I would have words to say, like totally. I would not be, I would not be silenced and I wouldn't be scared into being silenced, but the environment was really scary. Yeah. Because of the, because of the level of punishment or humiliation, lots mm -hmm. of public humiliation, and that like really works for for many people. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. My my abuser was an incredible misogynist and had some terrible nicknames for me, and you know the it, humiliation was I think definitely a really big um, manipulation, you know, factor in that as well. And that is a very strong silencer as well, because totally. you don't want to be put on the spot or you don't want to be the different one as no, well when you want to be accepted. Okay. Where were we? Yeah. So re rebuilding those female friendships. What was, what was that like for you? Just making friends after all of that in general. So hard. Like, yeah. Well, you met your now was, husband shortly I after, did. like during that time too. And that was honestly, I feel like a gift from God because <laughs> yeah. I did, I didn't, I wasn't looking for a boyfriend at all. I couldn't right. give two fucks about guys at that point. I was like, can everybody just leave me 
F alone. Yes. Like, no girlfriends, no guy friends, no this, no that. I just, like, yeah. I, I just wanted to have my own thoughts with myself and not be bombarded by everyone because that's kind of how I felt when I was coming out of the cult. Totally. Was, like just completely bombarded. And I couldn't, I, I didn't know what, what my thought was. Yeah. Well, and the so, media was also like very heavily fixated on you. I feel like because yeah. of how hard your mom was fighting to get you out. So you really didn't have any privacy. It was like, no, here she is, everybody, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was like, yay, joy. Everyone's in my underwear drawer. Cool. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, kind I, of I literally like, it's crazy, yeah. but I mean, you, I, it, it what was that easy, like? And it, it, it wasn't easy at all. And I, I think like, what I've had to, I guess the biggest part of that is being vulnerable and being honest with people, because that's kind of where I've seen the most growth for myself is in the relationships that I wanted to have, whether they be new ones, I just had to be me. And like that, it was really scary at first. And I thought people were going to reject me for, for what I had experienced or who I was or how I think Yeah, and, and, and how I think about the world and how I think about these issues. And then I slowly started to interface with reality and like even rekindle old friendships that I had lost, like the friendships that I had had pre-cult and even as a child. And like, that was really cool because I started to get parts of myself back. And then I also started to feel safer with women and like opening up and then collaborating with them and working with them and appreciating them. And it was like, it wasn't was just a one thing, like a one shot and done. It was like layer after layer of different pieces that had been lost that yeah. had to come back together. Yeah. It's just so interesting because I feel like our culture has already taught young girls that women are our competition, you know, whether it be for a guy or for a job or whatever. And I think that we as women all have had that thought in some time in our lives or we felt that way. And then yours was just at such an extreme level that I can only imagine that, uh, that again, vulnerability and being able to open yourself up to female friendships when they had been so damaging to you in the past. And And you had been, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, it's just funny. My mantra for myself was like, okay, can I be a feminist who also loves men? Because I, I do love men. I appreciate men. I think what they bring is super valuable, but I was so fucking angry at them for what you don't love is abuse. What you don't love is toxic men and toxic behavior. I think that's the thing. I had to like separate all of these things out of my mind and be like, okay, what does, India care about what are my needs first of all like I just didn't even know what I needed and then how can I communicate my needs that was a whole layer of therapy that I needed deeply well yeah and I mean that's something that I'm sure you weren't expecting with like meeting Patrick when you first that's his name right I'm remembering it correctly yeah okay awesome (laughs) thank you meeting him and um and you know as you're kind of getting out of that you're not you're not only learning how to give yourself what you need, but you're also navigating like being in a relationship. What what was he like and supporting you through all of that in the beginning of your relationship and everything? I think it was definitely a learning curve for him, a yeah. continual learning curve for both of us when yeah. it comes to relating um, authentically, which can sometimes be not cute. Oh, um, of course. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's helpful. I think for him, he, he just saw me as like a normal girl. And I, yeah. I just really appreciated that. And I was like, finally, like somebody just sees me for who I am and how I am. And, 
And I didn't feel like he associated me with Nexium, although it was difficult to separate the two at the time because yeah. it was so, I was so saturated with it. Right. But he, but the more that we spent time together and the more he got to know the, the, the me that was starting to emerge right. out of, you know, really being suffocated and drowned <laughs> for seven years. And like, I felt like I was crawling out to get air. And like, each time I would get air, I'd be like, oh, oh, that's, this is my life. And then yeah. I would fall back and I would get depressed again, or I would feel anxious or I'd feel like the PTSD would take over and I'd be in, you know, a pretty bad trauma flare up for days or weeks. Right. On end. And then I would be, it would be like intermittent, like sort of strobing, like I would be out of it and then I'd be in and he was so patient with it and so non-judgmental, but also so scared because yeah. he was like, what is happening to this person? Like, it was so hard for him to see me in pain. And I didn't know how to explain myself because like I said, there was no roadmap for this and, no. and healing is not linear. So I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, right. am I ever going to get my brain back? Am I always going to be like this? When will I get relief? Like, That's a lot of all, pressure. A lot of pressure. And then to be in a relationship with someone where I kept saying, like, can you just leave me already? Because I'm such a fucking mess. I don't right. want you to be near me and I'm going to hurt you when I'm not in a good place. Aww. Because I didn't feel I didn't feel stable inside. Emotionally. Right. He, he trusted you more than you trusted yourself, I think, in that relationship, which is really important. He just I, I'm, I'm a big fan. Don't know the guy. Aww. Big fan. He seems lovely. He a, he's such a good egg. And like <laughs> he, he, he really is. Like he has a good heart and he, he wants to learn and he wants to do well. And he's a hard worker. Yeah. He's a simple guy. Like, and I think that's what I needed. Not simple in his mind, but in in his needs. Yes. He wants to have good food. He wants to be with his friends. He wants to cook. He wants to be in nature. He wants to hunt. And like, that was the thing that I think I needed was a good friend who knew what they liked Uh. because all of a sudden I was like, wait, he likes things. We like some things together and we like things separately. Like instead of having to be the person that suppresses all of their needs and then just becomes a servant to whomever you're with, Uh you actually get to be a person that's in the relationship. Exactly. And like also has needs. And I had never really had healthy models of that in my life. Yeah. You really had to kind of like figure out what that meant for yourself. I think particularly in a time where that would be incredibly difficult. I think that it's really, it's, it's pretty amazing. (laughs) And COVID. Oh my God. On top of it all, you guys were just like stuck together really after that. Did you spend it together for the most part? Yeah. All of it. (laughs) Like we, we've pretty much, I mean, besides like a couple months, here and there each year because he's taken time to study in Italy I've also had work so we've we've had like long periods of time where we've been separated otherwise we've been together like together together you know driving cross country several times yeah you really just look like you have the funnest life truly oh it (laughs) like my goal is for my outside life to match my inside life so like that's what I strive for every day. I mean, that's why I think microdosing is so important for me in my healing journey, because it's been able to like balance my emotions inside to the way that I want to experience my life on the outside. And so like that, that was quite difficult for me for a really long time to get a handle on. And so I think like healing in general is, is complicated, but it's, there's also lots of things out there that can really make it 
less lonely. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite words in the English, English language is authenticity. How do you feel that, and we've kind of already talked about this a little bit throughout our conversation, but how do you feel that you've been able to find those things that you like or find your authenticity? And who do you see India as being right now? Well, that's a cool question to close with. I have really, really tried to follow a couple rules for myself. One, get rid of all the other rules. (laughs) Two, Two, be myself unapologetically and whatever that is when it comes to my, the way I speak, the way I dress, the way I move, the way I dance, the way I eat, the way I express myself. Like, how could I do that without having self-judgment or really stopping myself because I'm afraid of other people judging me? Like that is free. That is freedom to me. And I like really strive for that. And then to be myself authentically is really to just be honest and to be honest with me first and then have the bravery to be honest with others because Mm -hmm. that takes it to the next level. And like, that is also very freeing, but can be really scary. Yeah. But also like, and to a certain extent, like, what do you have to lose? Like the relationship with you, it should be free. It should be fluid. There should be nowhere that you can't go in your own mind. Like yeah. I, I tell myself a lot, like my mind is a safe place. My mind yeah. is a safe place because I want it to be. And I also know that like when it comes to my most personal relationships, that's where I struggle the most. So like, that's where I need the most courage to just to be me and feel okay with that. Yeah. So like that's my daily practice. And like, I think it comes in lots of different forms and it's a work in progress. And like, I wrote a book called still learning for a reason, because I feel like that's just what life is about. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, and I'm going to plug all of your goodies at the end. I, I absolutely loved your audio book. I mean, that was what made me want to reach out and chat with you. I felt like I got to know you a little bit. I felt like you and I were, were very similar. I mean, you are a descendant of the Royal family. My aunt invented the Dairy Queen blizzard. I love we're like the same. It's I need the, to get one. I'm the oh. I'm the Midwest version of royalty, baby. <laughs> totally. That is, I love I love that connection so much. And and then I I when you told me that when you saw my count I was like, yes, I know someone from Dairy Queen. <laughs> I hope you really enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. If you want to know more about India, you can check out the docu-series that she and her mother created, Seduced, on Stars. I believe it's like a three or four part series and it's so well done. Secondly, you can go ahead and follow her on Instagram at India Oxenberg. If you have anything to say about the episode, please shoot me an email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or send me a direct message on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you want to get in touch with your fellow listeners, go ahead to the Facebook group page. And if you want to rate and review us on Facebook, we also have a business page. The best way that you can possibly support the show right now, though, is for you to go over to the Apple Podcast app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. I've really appreciated all of the recent reviews, so let's keep them coming. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye.
Hello, I'm Faith McQuinn, creator of the podcast Margaritas and Donuts from Observer Pictures. I think we can all relate to the awkward, clumsy moments during the start of a new relationship and the sweet moments as well. Margaritas and Donuts is about Josephine, a pediatrician who's been pretty unlucky in love as she starts a new relationship with Malik, an ophthalmologist that works in the same building she does. Malik is exactly what Josephine needs, even if she doesn't know it yet. With the support of her bestie Katrina, Joe navigates the ups, downs, sweetness, and saltiness of romance. Get your rom-com fix and listen to Margaritas and Donuts wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more at md.observerpictures.com. Happy listening.